From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. After skin cancer, breast cancer is the most common cancer among women in the United States. Thanks to substantial support for breast cancer awareness and research funding, early detection and new personalized approaches to treatment have improved the outcomes for breast cancer patients. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, the time to offer support and learn more about this disease that affects one in eight women and can affect men as well. On today's program, we'll learn more about breast cancer screening, treatment, and prevention from a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, what can be done about low back pain? And why strength training is especially important for women. All that along with this week's health and medical news right up there. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, more than 230,000 cases of breast cancer are diagnosed in women each year in the United States. And sadly, more than 40,000 women die each year from the disease. Statistics show that one in eight women will be affected by breast cancer in their lifetime, and the risk goes up as you get older. The good news is early detection and innovative treatments are helping more women survive longer with a breast cancer diagnosis. We're talking about this, of course, because October, if you haven't noticed, is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And here to discuss is the outgoing director of the Breast Diagnostic Clinic at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Karthik Ghosh. Dr. Ghosh is transitioning to her new role as Division Chair of General Internal Medicine. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Ghosh. Thank you, Tom and Tracy. Appreciate it. Dr. Ghosh, good to see you, and congratulations on your new position. You know, it seems like every week, almost every week, we hear about a friend or a relative with a new diagnosis of breast cancer. Is breast cancer more common than it used to be? I believe that over time, the fact that women go in for screening mammograms, we are able to diagnose cancer earlier and earlier. That may be one of the factors... Uh, that affect the increasing numbers that we're seeing. Um, when we look at um, incidents over time, or uh, the numbers haven't really shown that much of an increase since about uh, early in when screening mammograms started, there was an increase in incidence, and after that, it's kind of stabilized out. Um, but uh, what we're also seeing is outcomes in terms of improved treatments, and uh, we're hoping that that mortality re- reduction kind of will be seen over time. Is it partly because women are living longer, too? Well, absolutely, yes. Because, and you also know that age, as you mentioned, is a risk factor for breast cancer. So the longer women live, that is going to cause that increase to be more perceptible. And then early, earlier diagnosis of breast cancer with mammography, uh, helping with uh, the diagnosis of very early types, such as ductal carcinoma and site 2. I think it'd be fair to say that in addition to more and more women seemingly being uh, diagnosed with breast cancer, you also seem to have people who are having successful treatments and I'm going to use really big finger quotes, an easier time of going through their cancer diagnosis and treatment. And I would suppose it's for the very same reason. Absolutely. In terms of uh, treatment of breast cancer, we have seen dramatic improvements thanks to the amazing work, the research work being done by 
breast cancer research specialist uh, at Mayo and throughout the world, we have seen huge advances in treatment of breast cancer. And as a result, it is not just in terms of uh, treatment, in terms of longevity, but also treatment of symptom management and uh, care of uh, patients at the end of life and all of that. So that's kind of what we are seeing in terms of improved outcomes. Uh, yes. Uh, isn't the uh, the fact that uh, women are told that they have a one in eight chance of getting breast cancer, isn't that a little bit misleading? Because that's only true if you live long enough, right? So if you're a 40-year-old woman, then your chances of getting breast cancer are, what, one in 50 or something like that. That's exactly right. You know, I think that as we live longer, because age is a risk factor, our, the likelihood of developing breast cancer increases as we get older. And so that's why when we talk about screening, you know, there's the whole controversy, and we will come to that in a little bit about, you know, do we do mammograms or not? Uh, younger women have less likelihood of developing breast cancer, but as we get older, the likelihood increases. So the longer you live, you hear more about uh, breast cancer diagnosis. And one of the things we also see is that as we live longer, one of the age-dependent kind of cancers are the, the slower-growing kind of cancers, more treatable with good outcomes. So. Before we talk about the different tests and mammography and the current guidelines, I want to ask you about breast self-exams because it seems like uh, we were told, women were told at one time that every month they ought to check their breasts and when they're in the shower or the tub. And then a few years ago, the word came out that really women shouldn't even try to examine their own breasts because it isn't helpful. Where, where do you stand? The whole, uh, the United States Preventive Services Task Force did come out with the recommendation that breast self-exams are not necessary, clinical breast exams are not necessary, and some of this is based on research that was conducted in Shanghai, China, where they kind of looked at women who had had regular breast exams and another group that hadn't, and they found that maybe there wasn't much of a difference. However, we do know that there are women who come in who have self-detected cancers, uh, that were not picked up even on a screening mammogram that was done in the recent past. Right. Um, self-awareness is what we call it now, is being familiar with your breast, that if you notice a change in your breast, so in a shower when you're soaping yourself and you've felt something, get it checked out. So self-awareness is something that is very important, and we do encourage our women to, to be self-aware. And it's not just about women. It's about every individual being familiar about their bodies. If something changes, go seek help. And really, therefore... We strongly do encourage breast self-awareness. All right. Um, let's talk about the current guidelines for mammograms because there's some controversy there, too. So the screening mammogram uh, recommendations vary, in fact, even by institutions or different groups. So the United States Preventive Services Task Force recommends that women start yearly screening mammography at age 50, and then you can do biennial, which is every other year. And that for women from 40 to 49, um, you discuss with your healthcare provider and then decide if you want to do the mammogram. And the American Cancer Society uh, came out with the recommendation, start screening at age 45. Um, how a national comprehensive cancer network says start screening at age 40. You know, at Mayo Clinic, we've kind of looked at all of these data, and we believe in working together as an institution, one Mayo. We have a Breast Standards Council, which incorporates our, all our various uh, sites. And what we decided looking at the data was it would be reasonable to start screening at age 40 uh, with the recommendation, again, encourage, educate our patients. What are the benefits? What are the risks? The benefits of early detection. 
um, compared to the downsides. You know, the downside of mammography, of course, you go in, if you're called back for additional testing, there is anxiety related to that. There is a risk of false positives. There is also the risk of false negatives. So false positives is you go in, there's a finding, you do a biopsy, and it's benign. Well, that was a lot of anxiety for the patient. The other is a false negative, which is, you know, women with dense breasts, which is on mammogram, the tissues look very dense, can miss a cancer. So there is that limitation of false negatives. And then the whole controversy about overdiagnosis of breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Are we picking cancer so early that perhaps it's not going to cause harm in the lifetime of that woman? So these are all information patients need to be aware of before they make their decision. But I will say this is when we talk about this, this is for the average risk population, a woman who does not have a family history or any other risk factors. For women who are at a higher risk, so if you have a family history or you have a gene mutation like a BRCA1 or 2 gene mutation or women who have received radiation to the chest, these are women, because of, say, Hodgkin's or uh, diseases in the past, they are women considered at elevated risk where the screening guidelines are very different. All right, what about women with dense breasts? And, and I know mammogram is, is still the gold standard, but it's not perfect, particularly when it comes to women with dense breasts. So what other tests do you have available for women like that? Thank you for asking that. You know, we this has been an area that has required a lot of work. Uh, radiology has been doing a lot of research to try and say what are the new advances. Some of the tests that are called, uh, that are, the whole group is called supplemental screening. The question really is, does a woman benefit from supplemental screening in addition to mammography if her mammogram showed dense breasts? And supplemental screening, one of the first things is tomosynthesis. This is the 3D mammogram uh, where you do the two the top-down, side-to-side views of the breast. But while you do that, you take several sections of imaging through the breast, so it gives us a little more detail. The biggest advantage of 3D mammography is a decrease in recall rates, which means being called back. It's a very big difference. When I look at uh, mammogram and versus that tomosynthesis one, it's like I'm looking at two different patients. Uh, results. It's amazing. So even the patient can tell the difference. Absolutely. (laughs) If I can tell the difference, it's a big deal. That's All right. And what else? And so 3D is um, uh, now getting to be routine for women in general, regular mammograms, and now it's becoming 3D. The next important uh, advancement is molecular breast imaging, and uh, initiated uh, the, by studies at Mayo Clinic, uh, colleagues Dr. Deborah Rhodes and Dr. Michael O'Connor, with radiology and nuclear physicists, kind of work to create to bring this to our practice. And what it is is a tiny dose of radioisotope is given intravenously, and that outlines the breast tissues in terms of it's a functional image of the breast and basically highlights areas of high blood flow and therefore high uh, uptake of the radioactive um, material and therefore can very clearly identify cancers in women with dense breasts. And, you know, we generally say when you screen a 1,000 women with mammography, you pick up about four cancers. When you add tomosynthesis, it adds another one to three cancers per 1,000 women. With molecular breast imaging, it adds about another eight to nine cancers per 1,000 women. So that's definitely something that uh, to be considered for women with dense breasts. And then the next test is, molec- is um, magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, of the breast. MRI can pick up a lot more, so about 13 to 14 cancers per 1,000 women, but it's a being highly sensitive. The big concern is that it causes a whole lot of false positives and also the cost of the test. And so 
MRI of the breast is a supplemental screening for women at very high risk, and we have very clear guidelines on who should be pursuing MRI in addition to mammogram. All right, so if you have dense breasts, the alternatives to mammogram are tomosynthesis, MBI, molecular breast imaging, and MRI. All right, we've been talking about breast cancer screening and early detection with an expert, Dr. Karthik Ghosh, the outgoing director of the Breast Diagnostic Clinic at Mayo Clinic. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and our guest is a Mayo Clinic expert on breast cancer, Dr. Karthik Ghosh. All right, myth or matter of fact, Dr. Ghosh, being overweight increases your risk of developing breast cancer. Is that a myth or a fact? That is indeed a fact. Uh, Weight is one of our breast cancer risk factors, and so the more we can do to keep our weight down, the better it is. So cutting down the actual management of that is eating healthy with regular and regular exercise. When we say eating healthy, it's actually cutting down on fat intake uh, would definitely be uh, a risk factor reduction and regular exercise. Um, the other things that will help uh, is uh, watching the alcohol intake um, because excess alcohol intake is a risk factor for breast cancer also. So we have uh, obesity, family history, obviously age. As you get older, you're more likely to get breast cancer. Alcohol, sedentary lifestyle. Did I miss anything? Sounds about right. Sounds like what a lot of our expert guests tell us. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, the risk factors for a lot of things are the same, aren't they? All right, let's talk about the different types of breast cancer because I know there are several different ones. Can you outline that for us? Sure. The breast cancer um, markers kind of help us identify what kind of cancers these are. So um, we have what is based on the location of the abnormality. We can call it breast cancer can be ductal or lobular cancers. Uh, but in general, what we're finding is that the biology matters and that tumors that are estrogen receptor positive, estrogen or progesterone receptor positive or HER2 positive or negative for each of these markers kind of identifies what type of tumor this is. So an estrogen positive, progesterone positive, HER2 negative uh, breast cancer differs from a HER2 positive breast cancer and is different also from what is called a triple negative breast cancer. And the treatment for those is different, is what you're saying. That's why it's important. That's exactly right, because now biology is what drives cancer treatment. So it's very individualized to the type of cancer the person has. So if a woman has an estrogen-positive cancer, there are medications that go after the estrogen receptor. If the patient has a HER2-positive breast cancer, we have targeted therapy for the HER2-positive disease. What a... What a ways it has come. I mean, I'm not a breast cancer survivor, but I will meet women who are 30 or 40 year cancer survivors. And to look at what can be done for those patients today versus back then, it was back then there was like one treatment and that was it. Is that right? That is exactly right. I mean, initially it was women with breast cancer had the option of mastectomy, removal of all lymph nodes. And when chemo came into being, everybody got that chemotherapy. But now, thanks to, again, the breast cancer researchers um, who have really advanced to understand, number one is that what is the biology of these cancers, and then based on the biology, try to find targeted treatments that work well. And so even conditions such as triple negative breast cancer, at one point these were diseases which were hard to treat. And now we're coming up with newer therapies um, managed by our, our special oncologists who uh, come and 
create a treatment that is very specific for the patient. You know what I forgot? One of the risk factors? What? People have had prior radiation, which includes you because you had lymphoma when you were a kid. Very much so, yeah. That's why I bypass all those other things and go straight to the MRI, And which is interesting when you're talking about cancer treatment because they don't treat lymphoma that way anymore with radiation to the chest because... Now I'm at such an elevated risk. That's right. I mean, these kind of exposures, radiation therapy to the breast region does increase one's future risk of breast cancer. Usually we say about eight years out from the radiation, the woman should be having yearly screening mammography and MRI. So... Come on, there Dr. Shives. What, Get do you it think, what do you think I keep doing this program for so I can have people like Dr. Ghosh on my side? <laughs> thank that you, Tracy. Hurt. Thank you, and thank you for being the advocate for women. All right, genetic testing. Confusing yes. subject. Uh, what tests are available and who ought to be genetically tested? So when we talk about women with a family history of breast cancer, um, you're always trying to understand, anybody who has a family history, we're trying to understand based on the family history, is there evidence to suggest that this family may be a family of carrying a genetic abnormality that puts them at increased risk? What we used to know really was BRCA1 and BRCA2 were two genes associated with very high risk of breast and ovarian cancer. Um, as information has evolved, as gene testing has become more available and knowledge has increased, we have found that there are other genes also that may be associated with breast cancer. So what does a woman do? Typically what we say is that if you have a family history, discuss with your physician let the clinician let them know that this is what my family history is. And it's not only breast cancer. If you have a family history of breast, ovarian, colon cancer, males with prostate cancer, melanoma, um, and even pancreatic cancer, these may all be linked. And really, any cancer, seek help from your clinician so that then we can say, does this patient qualify to be sent for gene testing? Now, usually what we prefer is that when there is a family history like that, we say meet with a genetics counselor, seek the expert's opinion, and then they can guide you as to what is your likelihood of carrying a gene mutation, and that guides what kind of testing to be done. And depending on how you test, then you can give a woman advice about what she ought to do and how frequently she ought to be tested, etc. That's exactly right. There are very clear guidelines that a woman who carries a BRCA1 or 2 gene mutation would benefit from MRI in addition to mammography. And the timing of initiating the treatment, generally we start MRI at age 25 for BRCA carriers, and then at age 30 we add mammography for these BRCA carriers. Then at some point when they've finished their childbearing earlier, that is around 35 to 40 years, usually close to 40, we start talking about risk-reducing surgery. So again, uh, very important for these patients to be in touch with experts. All right, it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. What's the most important thing you want women to know? Be aware, be familiar with your breasts, seek medical attention if you have noticed any changes, and ask your doctor about going in for a mammogram. Be (laughs) an advocate for yourself. Just like Tracy. (laughs) Dr. Karthi Ghosh is a breast cancer expert at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Ghosh, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Tom. Tracy, it's been a privilege. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss treatment for low back pain. And later on in the program, the importance of strength training for women. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. We'll start with info about urinary tract infections or UTIs in women. Drinking more water will help women avoid them. That may sound familiar. 
Well, now a study in JAMA shows women who added 1.5 liters of water each day to their regular intake of fluids were less likely to get another UTI than women who drank less than that amount. It's estimated that 50% of UTIs can be treated by drinking a significant amount of fluid alone, says Felicia Fick, a Mayo Clinic urogynecology physician assistant who was not involved in the study. She says the extra you're drinking is flushing out the bacteria that are present in the urinary tract. She adds any type of fluid is fine, but sometimes the more acidic, the better, and that there are mixed studies on the benefits of cranberry juice. But Mayo Clinic does recommend trying cranberry juice, cranberry extract, or cranberry pills as well as water. A UTI is an infection in any part of your urinary system: your kidneys, your readers, bladder, and urethra. Most infections involve the lower urinary tract, the bladder, and urethra. Women are at greater risk of developing a UTI than are men due to their shorter urethras, and serious consequences can occur if a UTI spreads to your kidneys. Fix says if a woman has fever, chills, flank pain, kidney stone history, she should also drink a lot of fluid. But it's imperative she see a healthcare provider immediately for a urine culture. Now, UTIs don't always cause signs and symptoms, but when they do, they may include a strong, persistent urge to urinate, a burning sensation when urinating, passing frequent small amounts of urine, urine that appears cloudy, urine that appears red, bright pink, or cola-colored, a sign of blood in the urine, strong-smelling urine, and pelvic pain. Check with your healthcare provider if you have symptoms to see if you need treatment. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives, and I'm Tracy McRae. The lumbar spine, or the low back, is a structure of interconnecting bones, joints, nerves, ligaments. It's really pretty complex. The lower back supports the weight of the upper body, and it provides flexibility for motions like bending and twisting. Two of my favorite things: yeah. bending, bending and, and twisting. twisting. Yeah, <laughs> all of those moving parts, though, can also mean trouble. Almost anyone who experiences low back pain at one time or another might agree with that, and it's one of the most common causes of disability in America. Luckily, you can take measures to treat and even prevent low back pain. Here to discuss is physical medicine and rehabilitation specialist Dr. Ralph Gay. Welcome to the program, Dr. Gay. It's nice to meet you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Dr. Gay, good to have you on the program. Uh, so it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, this is so common? Eight out of ten people will have back pain at some point during their lives. It's the leading cause of disability for men over the age of 45. What is the problem with the low back? Uh, the problem is that we're all aging. That's part of it. But low back pain concerns people of almost all ages. We see significant low back pain in adolescents. And young people, uh, the most common age group for disc herniation is between the ages of 30 and 50. We're seeing a lot more people who are living longer and trying to be active. So many more people who have spinal stenosis. Can you tell us what that means, stenosis? Okay. It's spinal stenosis. Stenosis means narrowing. And you can have stenosis of many structures in your body, stenosis of your arteries that go to your heart. Stenosis of the spine has to do with the canal that the nerves go through. And there's a main canal that goes down through the middle. Then there's two small at each level between the vertebra. There are two small canals called foramen, and they can become narrow or stenosed as well. The common spinal stenosis is stenosis of the main canal that can cause pain when you stand and walk because that canal gets smaller at that time. 
and you get pain in your buttocks or legs typically, and you sit down and it goes away. So that's a common cause of of buttock and leg pain and sometimes back pain as well in more elderly patients. And then we all are aging and our spine ages. Our spine starts aging on a microscopic level by our late teen years. By the time we hit our 20s, we start seeing disc bulges and protruding discs. And it just gradually ages as we get older. We don't know exactly why. This is not something where it's a bad gene. We do know that a lot of it is genetically determined based on twin studies where we can look at people who have identical DNA. This is primarily done in northern European countries like Denmark where they can track people throughout their life. But a lot of this is genetically determined, and we're living longer, and we're wanting to be more active. And so we see back pain throughout the the course of life. So is this a skeletal problem because of that stenosis of the spine, or is it a muscle? I always just think my low back pain is a muscle problem, but it doesn't sound like it is. Well, that's a very good question, and it's one that we don't have a very clear answer to. When you look at studies that try to isolate what is causing back pain as far as a specific tissue? Is it a joint? Is it a muscle? Is it a nerve? We can't do that very well. Mm. And some of the studies would suggest that no more than maybe 10 to 15% of the time can we isolate a structure that we know is causing the person's pain. Most often it's multifactorial. If you have an arthritic joint in your back and it's aggravated, the muscles get tight and they become painful. We're very good at, at finding nerve problems, pinched nerves or injured nerves. But when it when we get out of the realm of the nerve tissue into the musculoskeletal tissue, as we say, the bones and the joints and the discs, we're not very good at isolating exactly where the pain is coming from. And it's very difficult to do that clinically. There are a few of the tissues that we can uh, within reason say is are causing pain such as the small joints in the low back that uh, often are affected by arthritis uh, but there are other structures that we know cause pain such as the disc and we have no way of going in and numbing it up and proving that that's where the mm. pain is coming from it's all on clinical impression if you get back pain after a weekend of, of heavy lifting or a lot of golf or whatever uh, and it's not bad enough or hasn't lasted long enough to you, for you to think that you ought to go see the physician, what's the best thing to do for it? The common recommendation or the current recommendation is that we don't go see a doctor right away, uh, as you've uh, insinuated. Uh, the best thing to do is uh, rest, possibly take some ibuprofen or Tylenol, and you can use ice or heat. There's no science to tell us which works better. Yeah, that was uh, a question we all, we all want to ask. What do I use, ice or heat? And there's no right answer, huh? No, we we uh, we depend on extrapolating from uh, joint problems or joint injuries, such as sprained ankles, where we theoretically believe that if we not theoretically, I'll say we believe that that uh, if we put ice on it, it reduces inflammation from an injury. Well, that's not necessarily going to help in the low back because the the cold from the ice doesn't get deep enough to affect the physiology down around the spine. And the same way with heat. The heat doesn't get down there far enough. And so it's probably affecting the nerves and the muscles that it can penetrate more than anything else and affecting the pain that way. Certainly ice or heat can uh, reduce 
uh, some pain, and it can help with muscle spasm if you're having spasm. But I can't tell you that there's a right and a wrong application of ice and heat in that situation. If it's acute, I would go with the ice first. I'd and try it first. And when you say rest, what do you mean by rest? You don't mean lay down in bed. No, rest is relative rest. And we know that if you lay in bed for three days, it's going to be more damaging than helpful. Uh, when we lay down, we lose muscle mass, we lose bone density, and it doesn't take very long not being active before those things can uh, become measurable. So rest is reducing your activities to the point that you're not making yourself miserable is the way I explain it to my patients. It's not likely you're going to do additional damage unless you have like pain, numbness, and tingling down your leg where you probably have a pinched nerve. If it's back pain, I would do whatever I can reasonably do without making myself miserable. And I would expect things to get better over a course of a week or maybe two weeks sometimes. And some treatment might be my favorite massage. But what else? There is evidence for many types of treatment for back pain. None of the evidence is strong, mm. whether it be uh, the anti-inflammatory medicines or spinal manipulations such as a chiropractor or physical therapist might provide or massage or acupuncture or tai chi or yoga. There's some evidence for most of these things, but the evidence is not strong for any of it. And that's why we have so many different treatments mm-hmm. that people get to choose from. Uh, one of uh, my my friends, Scott Haldeman, uh, wrote an article a few years ago, and they described it like going through the back pain supermarket. You can just mm-hmm. pick things off the shelves that you wanted to try. And that's because none of them work wonderfully. So as far as what is best in your case, I would say well, what's worked in the past? Sure. What do you tolerate? What are you willing to do? But not only can you do those passive things, you have to do some active things. You have to keep moving with relative rest. All right. And how about prevention? A few uh, hints about that. And then we don't have to worry about all those options. Now, that would be wonderful if we could prevent all this from from occurring to begin with. Uh, Again, we don't have good studies that tell us that we can prevent back pain. We know that we can prevent episodes of back pain at times, and the only thing that has strong evidence there is exercise. None of the rest of the treatments that we do can really prevent pain. And uh, there are certain factors, though, risk factors, uh, that we can alter. If you smoke, stop smoking because smoking, the nicotine, affects the blood supply to the disc, the outside of the disc, and uh, the uh, small pores that go in and out of the disc from the the, uh, bone, and it can increase disc degeneration. If you're overweight, if you lose weight, it's probably going to help. Uh, If you don't exercise, that's a risk factor. Being sedentary is a risk factor. And we're more sedentary now in our society than we've probably ever been in the past. And that's probably one of the one of the reasons that there's so many people who suffer from back pain. Yeah, obesity a problem. It, yeah, it how many of sense. us are 30 pounds overweight? Yeah. Carry a 30-pound backpack around and see what the difference makes. If it, mm. if it occurs to us slow, we don't think of it over time. But if it occurs quickly, then you become very aware that this is a stress that my back doesn't need. Right. Well, a common problem, low back pain. Unfortunately, we don't have all the answers, but there are some things that you can do to prevent it. Dr. Ralph Gay, physical medicine and rehabilitation specialist is another name for that. Thanks so much for being with us. You're very well. 
Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. When it comes to working out at the gym, have you noticed women seem to gravitate toward the, the cardio exercises? Walking, running, well, that's all good. But a cardio-only workout routine is missing a key element that's especially important for women as they age, and that is strength training. Strength training. training. Strength training. The benefits of strength training for women include preserving muscle mass that we lose as we age and strengthening bones to help prevent osteoporosis. So why aren't more women hitting the weight room? Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic well-being specialist, Terry Wielden. Terry, <laughs> I am particularly glad to meet you because I had wondered why Tracy has been showing up in sleeveless blouses. And then I look at the, she is buff, <laughs> and then she tells me that she's been working with you. Yep. He's yes. one of your better students? Um, more One of my uh, challenging, fun <laughs> students. Well, we can get to that later because um, it is important, I think, for people to know, for women to know that no matter what level you start at, and I won't make her say it, I was the weakest, but no matter where you come to the gym, it's important for women to come to the gym. Explain why. It's important for anyone to come to the gym because... Exercise is very beneficial for everyone. Why is weightlifting especially important for women? Women are prone to osteoporosis. Uh, We all lose muscle as we age, men or women. So for females, I think it's just very important as we get older to be able to just uh, extend the time that we're able to function on our own. So at least one of the advantages is it helps maintain bone strength. Yes. And, And what's the advantage of having more muscle? Well, it helps you perform all your daily activities uh, better. It reduces your risk of falling. Lean muscle requires more energy than... than, uh, So you burn more calories. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) In all sorts of ways. The tables have turned. She's been socking it to me in the gym for 12 weeks, and now I get to say, this program was a 12-week program. And in the beginning, we just met in a classroom um, I, it seemed to me so that you could convince us, all of the members of the group, that we should not be intimidated when we show up in the weight room. Was I imagining that? Is that true? No, that's very true. Uh, women often refer to the freeway area as the man room. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the important parts of the program is that we only work with free weights. But uh, it's very important that women get comfortable with free weights. It, it's just um, helps us mimic more the way we move and also helps women understand that it's not just for men. So women can strength train just like men can. And should. And should. Yeah, so tell us about uh, age-related sarcopenia. In other words, we all lose muscle mass as we get older, right? Men and women. Yes. So even just to maintain what you had when you were in your 30s, you got to do strength training, right? Yes, and even as you get older, that's going to be difficult because we do start to lose um, a certain percentage of our lean mass as we age, and strength training will help slow down the process even though what you were at at 25 is not what you're going to be at at 45, but you can be further along than someone who is 45 and has never strength trained. I don't think that any of the women that were in the class with us, there was eight of us, um, were too worried about bulking up too much. But some of the mo- mothers of people said, well, how, how much are you going to lift? You know, you don't want to bulk up. Are there still women that are afraid of that? Or has that message been, that myth been dispelled? Um, I'd say 50-50. I mean, that's one of the first questions I, or one of the first things I'm told when I'm designing a program for a female. I don't want to get big. So, uh we're not. In order to get big, you have to eat calories 
a lot of calories. Men have to eat more calories when they want to put on size. But women don't have as much testosterone in their system as men do, so typically we're not going to get big. Buff. But we, and my program focuses on lean mass. We don't even worry about percent body fat. So we're just looking to see are we helping women in the program not lose muscle and hopefully gain muscle. Oh, okay. And do you know, do we have any results yet, Tracy? Well, we don't for me because mine isn't until later, but our producer, Jen, had hers done earlier today, and boy, did she. It was very really? impressive. Yeah. But and that's not unusual, is it? That's what I can look forward to, hopefully, as well. Yes. most nine. I would tell you 95, 96% of the people who go through my program have uh, maintained or gained uh, muscle. After so, a period of, sorry. 12 weeks. 12 weeks. I'd say you're, you're going to do well. Yeah. <laughs> I'm intimidated so sitting here. I'm sweating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, listen, uh, this is to intimidate you. This program is heard on over 200 stations around the country. And so people that can't come and work out with you, Terry, um, what should they do when they go to the gym that is nearest to them? Do they just Google s- me? Google <laughs> <laughs> you got a program? You got an app? I'm starting right here. I, you didn't get the memo? Oh, we'll work on that. But they should definitely not be afraid of doing strength training. No, and if somebody was just starting, the first thing I would encourage them to do is do some form of body composition test just to find out their lean mass so that you have an idea, okay, here's where I am, and then meet with an educated and experienced uh, trainer to go through a extensive program that they would follow and then uh, go back and have another test done later to see, am I making changes that I wanted to? So not every program, uh, the program that you outlined is not the same for every woman. Well, it depends on goals. Like I could meet with you two and you have the same goals and I could potentially write up the same workout because a workout I write up for a guy can also be the workout I write up for a woman. Well, goals, so if I said, you know, I want to look like her, you'd say, well, here's the program. <laughs> well, get a, go get your hair curled. And <laughs> <laughs> no, I wanted to do it because I wanted to have stronger bones because I've heard the message that as you go through menopause, your bones start to get weaker. So how does lifting strengthen my bones? Because your muscles are protecting your bones, and as a muscle contracts, it puts force on the uh, bone, which helps the healthy bone remodel to get stronger. All right, so your bones get stronger. You look better. Uh, you got more muscle mass, so you burn more calories. More energy. More when I'm energy? running, I have tons more energy now than I used to. I'm not dreaming that, am I? Good. No, sleep better. But one of the, you know, outside of the physical benefits, the mental benefits are what I love to see in the program because I have people who are not very confident. Had one woman want to quit after week one and didn't, and it's just really, really rewarding to see them gain their confidence, and all of a sudden they're just lifting all this weight and like, wow, I never thought I could do that. So the self-confidence that they've gained has been my biggest reward. Multiple benefits. Yeah, (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right, we've been talking about the benefits of strength training for women with Mayo Clinic well-being specialist Terry Wielden. Terry, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. 
Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.